Well, we're in Psalm 106, so take your Bible and turn to Psalm 106. This is our series, Psalms in the Summer. We're going through each psalm each week. We've been through about seven years, six or seven years of this. Psalm 106, and Psalm 106 concludes Book 4 of the Psalms. And remember, the Psalms are divided into five sections or five books, and Book 4 ends with Psalm 106. Book 5 actually goes from 107 to 150. There's a lot of Psalms in that fifth book. Now, Psalm 106 begins and it ends the same way. Notice how it begins. Verse 1, praise the Lord. Notice how it ends. Verse 48, praise the Lord. Or in the Hebrew, hallelujah. And praise the Lord there with an exclamation point is meant to be um, a, a cry of excitement in a sense. But it's also a command. He's commanding them to praise the Lord. And it's an expectation. They should be praising the Lord. Every verse between the first and the last verse explains why they should be praising the Lord. Okay? Now, what I want to do is I'm going to give you, I'm going to sort of load this thing up front a little bit. I want to give you some explanation up front on Psalm 106. When I do that, then we can go through the psalm very quickly. Remember, there's 48 verses. We can get through these 48 verses very quickly as long as I upload it in the front, okay? So Psalm 106 is part of a trilogy. It's the last, the last of three psalms in book four. Psalm 104 tells us to bless the Lord or praise the Lord because of his creation and because he of his provision. Psalm 104, praise him because of his creation, because of his provision. Psalm 105 tells us to praise the Lord because of his miraculous acts. He intervenes and does miraculous things, his miracles. 106 tells us to praise the Lord because when we get ourselves in trouble, he eventually comes to our rescue and gets us out of trouble. Okay, so that's the last three psalms finishing up this section of the book of Psalms. Now I'm going to give you an outline. Here's how I'm going to outline Psalm 106. The prologue. Okay. The prologue goes from verses 1 through 6. So if you're marking your Bible, you can call 1 through 6 the prologue. Then, verses 7 through 33, we have a history of Israel's rebellion history of Israel's rebellion. And that rebellion is divided into three stages. Each rebellion taking place at a different location. So first, verses 7 through 12, you have a rebellion that takes place at the Red Sea. That's verses 7 through 12. The rebellion that takes place at the Red Sea. Okay. Then, verses 13 through 33, you have a rebellion that takes place in the wilderness. Now remember, they're in the wilderness for 40 years, and the psalmist is going to tell us about six acts of rebellion when they're in the wilderness. And that's going to cover verses 13 through 33. And then, believe it or not, verses 34 through 39 
tell us about their rebellion in the promised land. Even when they get to the promised land, they're still in a state of rebellion. So that will cover verses 34 through 46, rebellion in the promised land. So that's the second section, the history of rebellion. Okay. Then the third major section is the postlude. The postlude. And this is the, uh, the final stanza of this hymn, the song. And that covers verses 47 through 48. Okay. Now, we believe that this song was written during the Babylonian captivity when the nation ended up enslaved to the Babylonian Empire. I want to show you how we determine that. Okay? They are enslaved in Babylon, and that's when this psalm is written. How do you know that? Look at verse 47. Look what it says. Save us, O Lord, our God. This is 47. Save us, O Lord, our God. Gather us from among the what? The Gentiles. They are with the Gentiles, and they're, ask, they're asking to be delivered from the Gentiles. So it takes place during the Babylonian captivity. Now, in order for you to understand this, I want to put this in some sort of historical perspective. Because when I say Babylonian captivity, that doesn't mean anything to you. I would say for the average person. So I want to put the Babylonian captivity, and thus the psalm, in some sort of chronological or historical perspective. Now you know that Israel at one time was a monarchy. It had kings, right? Had three main kings. It was a united kingdom. All the people were under a one king. First, King Saul, who reigned for 20 years. He was a terrible king. Then King David, who reigned for another 40 years, and he was a sometimes good and sometimes bad king. And then King Solomon, who started out well but ended very poorly. Though that monarchy takes place at about 1000 BC. Okay. Soon after King Solomon dies, they get a, his son takes over, and he's a disaster. And the kingdom is divided into two parts. A northern kingdom made up of ten tribes. And the southern kingdom made up of two tribes. Just like the American Civil War. A nation divided. Ten tribes align with the north, and they take the name Israel. Two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, align with the south, they take the name Judah, a divided nation. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And each is led by a series of kings over a period of time. All the kings in the north are bad. They're the worst kings humanly imaginable. All the kings in the south are bad except for two, Josiah and Hezekiah. So we have divided kingdoms run by dictators who are abusing their own people. So what happens is God has established a covenant with Israel and he said, hey, if you do good, I'll bless you. If you do bad, I'll curse you. The northern king was constantly doing bad, so he brings a great, big, powerful empire down upon the northern kingdom and just devastates them. And that empire is the Assyrian Empire. And in 722, the northern kingdom falls to Assyria. 
and the people are just scattered. Their capital is just wiped out. The southern kingdom, they're bad too. Now, they're a little better than the northern kingdom, so God stays his judgment just a little bit longer, but guess what happened? Another mighty power grows up, and it's called Babylon. Babylon the Great totally destroys the Assyrian kingdom, takes over all the territory, comes right down into the southern kingdom, and just destroys the city of Jerusalem. And takes the people captive. That takes place in 587 B.C. This Psalm 106 is written during the Babylonian captivity. That makes sense to you? Okay. So I'll give you an outline. I'll give you a little bit of history. Okay. And what's going to happen is the psalmist is now going to rehearse for the captives, the Jewish captives, a history of Israel's rebellion. And he's going to say, this is what happens when you rebel to God. You're judged. This is what happens when you repent. You're blessed. And so he's going to give this history. And that's what he's doing. He's going to recount God's judgment and God's mercy upon the nation throughout history. They are being judged right now. So he is going to tell them in the last verses of the psalm, you know what you need to do? You need to cry out to God and ask him to save you. And if you do that, he will be merciful to you. I guarantee it, the psalmist says. Because every time God's people throughout history have cried out for help, guess what he's done? He's come to their aid. And I guarantee he'll come to your aid as well. That is the truth of each one of us, is whether we're individuals or whether we're in a Babylonian captivity and depend upon, because God keeps his word. He keeps his contract. He keeps his covenant. Okay? So, if we're going to title this Bible study today, we might call this Israel's disgrace and God's grace. But you're going to see Israel at its worst, and you're going to see God at his best. Okay? So let's look at the prelude. Let's look at verse 1. <clears throat> look what it says. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah, he says. Now, it's going to seem incongruous that he says praise the Lord because they're in such a mess. But this is what he's telling the people in Babylon right now to do. He's saying... Praise the Lord, you people in Babylonian captivity. Look what else he says. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Now that's Yahweh. That's the covenant God. Right? Give thanks to the Lord. Why should you give thanks to the Lord? First of all, give thanks to the Lord because of his character. Look what he says. For he is what? Good. God is good. Next, give thanks to the Lord because of his faithfulness. Look what he says. For his mercy endures what? Forever. God made a contract with you. He'll keep that contract with you. It never ends. It's forever. God will show you mercy. He will give you, show you loving kindness toward you. But you need to praise the Lord. You need to thank Him. He's good and He is faithful. Now that phrase in verse 1, God is good, is mentioned four times throughout the Psalms and it's mentioned two times in other books of the Bible. So it's sort of one of the the minor themes of the Bible, that God is a good God. So we have a saying, God is good, He's good always, He's good all the time. See? So, anyway, why to do it? Because of His character, because of His faithfulness. Then He asked a rhetorical question in verse 2, look what He said. Who can utter the mighty acts of God? Who can declare all His praise? 
And their answer is, no one. God's miraculous acts are beyond description. He's done things that you're not even aware of. You couldn't even praise Him for all the things that He's done because you're not aware of all the things that He's done in your life or that He's done in the nation. Now He makes a pronouncement. Look at verse 3. Blessed are those who, look, keep justice. And he who does righteousness all the time. So he makes a, makes a uh, pronouncement. You're blessed if you keep justice and you constantly do right things. You're blessed. Guess what happens if you don't do that? You're judged. You're cursed. See? So that's the, that's the covenant. Now what does it mean to keep justice? Because <laughs> if you want to be blessed, you better know what it means to keep justice. Right? So there's two kinds of justice. There's legal justice. Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was the chief of the Supreme Court, said, our Constitution demands equal justice under the law. That means it doesn't matter who you are, you come before the bar of justice, justice is blind. It doesn't look at your bank account, it doesn't look at your color, or your skin. Equal justice under the law. That's legal justice. But there's another kind of justice. And this is the kind of justice I think the writer's talking about. And it's social justice. Social justice is what Gary was talking about a little earlier. That Jesus talks about. Guess what? Take care of the poor. Take care of the widow. Take care of the orphans. Take care of the foreigners in your midst. Don't leave people behind. Don't the wealthy get rich off the backs of the poor. Forgive sins. Forgive debts. You know, uh, Return people's land to them. That's called social justice. Which means everyone gets a fair deal, deal socially. No one will starve in Israel. If you do that, you will be blessed, he says. So we got from the call to praise the Lord to a blessing, a rhetorical question, a blessing, and now we have a prayer. Okay? Verse 4 is the prayer. A twofold prayer. First, a prayer of petition. A prayer of petition. Look what it says. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that you have toward your people. Put, allow me to be part of this covenant. Remember me. Oh, visit me with your salvation, which means with your deliverance. Don't leave me out, the psalmist says. And he gives us a purpose for this prayer that I may see the benefit of your chosen one. I want to see what those blessings are. I want to be part of those blessings. That I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation. Don't forget me. That's what he's basically saying. That I may glory in your inheritance. That I may be a partaker of your inheritance. So that is a petition, a personal petition that the psalmist prays on his behalf. But then look what he does. Verse 6. It's a prayer of confession. Look what he says. And it's not about I, 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 as you see in verse 5. You see that? I, I, I. Look at verse 6. We, we, we. You see that? He's going to confess the sins of the nation. They don't have brains enough to do it. Guess what? He's going to do it for them. I remember Richard Land when he was the head of the Ethics and Religious uh, Committee of the Southern Baptist Convention several years ago, he got up and he confessed the sins of the Southern Baptist Convention, saying that we were racist. Now, guess what? 
He didn't commit those sins 100 years ago. He said, you know, we own slaves and we, we confess that sin. We shouldn't have done that. He confessed on behalf of the entire denomination. And that's sort of what you see happening, happening here. We have this one man, the psalmist. You don't know who it is. Confessing the sins of the nations. Look what he says. We have sinned, in verse 6, with our fathers, meaning with our forefathers. Hey, we're no better than they are. They sinned. We sinned. Look at this. We have committed iniquity. That's wickedness, in a sense. We have done wickedly. In other words, nothing has changed. We're the same as our forefathers were. They sinned. We've sinned. We've been a nation of iniquity, and we are still a nation of so he prays for himself to be included in God's forgiveness, and then he prays for forgiveness on behalf of the nation. We should be doing that as well on behalf of our nation and our church. Now, beginning in verse 7, he starts this history of rebellion. Okay, we have sinned like our forefathers. Well, how did our forefathers sin? Let me tell you. Let me give you a rundown of history. How our forefathers have rebelled against God. And he's going to give us the rebellion in three stages and in three locations. First, the rebellion by the sea. Okay, look at verse 7. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They had no idea what was going on. <laughs> Moses understood, <laughs> but the people, they didn't really understand what was going on. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies. but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Now, how did they rebel by the Red Sea? They escaped Egypt, they're heading toward the Red Sea, and they get there, and guess what? We're going to die in this spot. How are we going to get across the sea? Hey, here comes the soldiers! Moses, what have you done? You brought us out to die on this spot? You have dead bodies slewn on the shore. See, they complain. Let's go back. Maybe they'll take us back. Slavery wasn't so bad. So this is the rebellion. They start to rebel. What have you done here? And they're starting to question this deliverance. Hey, look at verse 8. Nevertheless, even with their rebellion, even with their griping, he saved them for his name's sake. In other words, he honored the covenant. He honored his word. He's a man of his word. God's a man of his word. He saved them for his name's sake. That he might make his power known. He rebuked the sea also. And it dried up. So he led them through the depths. As through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him, that's Pharaoh in Egypt, who hated them, and he redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. So notice, first of all, we have a rebellion at the sea. Ah, God brought us out just to kill us. Rebellion against God. Rebellion number one at the sea. Deliverance number one at the sea. God delivers them. He tells Moses, take your staff and just raise it up. And you'll see the glory of God. And guess what happened? The sea opened. <laughs> and he delivered them. That's great. Look what else it says. Verse 11. 
And then what happened? Water covered their enemies. And there was not one of them left. Then they believed his words. Then they say, hallelujah, hallelujah. They wouldn't say. They were singing songs. Oh, the great song of salvation in Numbers 15. Moses' sister Mary, and she has a tambourine that says she's leading a whole group of women singing as they're free from the Egyptians. Notice, one side of the sea, they're cursing God. The next side of the sea, they're praising God. God delivers them. It's rebellion number one. Rebellion by the sea. Okay? Second stage of rebellion. Rebellion in the wilderness. Okay? Now we're going to see six acts of rebellion that take place in the wilderness. The first act of rebellion is a complaint about their food. They lust for food. We see this in verse 13. Look what it says. They soon did what? Wait a second. They just get out of their... Red Sea opens up miraculously. Guess what they did? They forgot. It's not that they literally forgot. They weren't stupid. They still had brains. Just didn't register anymore. That's a big deal. Look, they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. Notice, they did not wait. They did not wait. But what did they do? Lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. They tested God in the desert. We want food. We want food. Remember God gave them manna down from heaven, quail? He gave them their request, verse 15. But guess what else he did? He set leanness into their soul. Better watch out what you ask for. You might get fat. Your body might get strong. But spiritually, you might show up the size of a pea. And so God gave them the request, but guess what? There's a judgment coming along with that, and that's the leanness of the soul. That's the first rebellion in the wilderness. Now look at the second rebellion in the wilderness. Jealousy against Moses. Look at verse 16. When they envied Moses in the camp, and Aaron, the saint of the Lord. Look at that. Aaron called the saint of the Lord. The earth opened up and swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abirim. A fire was kindled in their company and a flame burned up the wicked. Now, this is a situation where once they're free, they start complaining about Moses' leadership. And Aaron's leaders, ah, we don't like the way, you know, where are you taking us? You know, they start complaining about Moses and Aaron. And the leader is a guy named Dathan, another guy named Korah, Abiram, that's one of the sons, that's Dathan's brother, and a guy named Om. Four people start complaining. Now, the Dathan guy is somebody that you might recognize. Because if you saw the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, Edward G. Robinson plays Dathan. <laughs> Those of you who remember that name. <laughs> and he tries to, you know, wow, you don't want to follow this guy, do you? <laughs> and the earth opens up and just swallows him alive. And then the rest of them who are priests who have also rebelled, fire comes down and just burns them to a crisp. So this is the second rebellion. This time there's no mercy on these people. No, they're just judged. The God's judgment. The third rebellion starts in verse 19. And this is the golden calf. 
Remember Moses up on the mountain? They made a calf in Horeb, and they worshipped the molded, molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior. Notice the word forgot again. It's just they don't hold him in, in their conscious, consciousness. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, which is also Egypt, awesome things <coughs> by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them. Notice this. They rebel, and what's God going to do? He's going to destroy them. He's going to judge them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn his wrath, lest they destroy, he destroy them. So that, that nation would have been destroyed had it not been for Moses' intercession. Moses' prayer. That's the power of prayer right there. But it can save a nation. Think God could save this nation? We stopped complaining and started praying maybe a little bit more. It's a very interesting concept. Okay, now look at the next rebellion. That was rebellion three. Now this is rebellion number four. Here they doubt God's word about the promised land. He said, you're not going to believe this place. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. And guess what they said? I don't believe that. So this is the next rebellion. They doubt God's word. Look at verse 24. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word. But they complained in their tent. I don't believe all that stuff. They did not heed the voice of the Lord. Now it's very interesting. Over in Jeremiah, God says this. He says, you know, my desire was for you just to take me at my word and uh, go into the promised land and enjoy it. Because I just wanted you to, to take me at my word as if I'm your father and you are my children. You know, your dad says, you know, I'm going to take you to the ball game today. And you say, oh, that's so great to go. Just take your dad at his word. That's all I wanted you to do. Treat me like a father. I was going to treat you like a child. But no, you wouldn't do that. They did not treat God that way. So look at the result, verse 26. Therefore he raised his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their descendants among the nations, and to scatter them in the hands. And so... This is why it takes them 40 years to get through the wilderness because God is constantly judging the nation. Now we have the fifth rebellion in the wilderness and that starts in verse 28. It says this, They joined themselves also, so this is the next one, to Baal. That's the god Baal. Remember when Elijah fights against the prophets of Baal? They joined themselves to Baal of Peor, which is uh, uh, Moab area. They ate sacrifices made to the dead. Can you imagine that? They joined themselves to this false god. These followers of the false god were making sacrifices for the dead. And the Jews were eating their sacrifices that were made to the dead. You know? It goes on to say, Thus they provoked him to anger. They provoked him to anger with their deeds. And look what happened. Plague Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped. But we do know from Numbers 25 that 24,000 people died of the plague. That's in the plague upon the way. The only reason it was stopped because Phineas took some action. Some of you may remember that story. The word got back to the leaders that 
the Jews were <clears throat> cohorting with uh, the people of Baal, having relationships with them, marrying them, doing all these kinds of things. And when Phineas heard it, he grabbed his spear and he ran into a tent and saw a man and a woman, follower of Baal and a Jewish woman, I believe, and vice versa. And he took that spear and he pierced both of their bodies through at once. And when he did, that stopped the plague. That was sort of a wake-up call for the nation. God stayed his hand. And so that's what verse 31 basically mentions right here. It says, verse 30, Phineas stood up and he intervened and the plague was stopped. And that was accounted to him for righteousness. Look at this. To all generations forevermore. God would never send a plague on the land like that again. Now the sixth act of, act of rebellion, which takes place at the waters of uh, Meribah. So look at verse 32. Sixth rebellion in the wilderness. Verse 32. They angered him also. This is the next one. At the waters of strife, or Meribah, Meribah in Hebrew, which means strife. So that they angered God to the point so that it went ill with Moses on account of them. Because it went ill with Moses on account of them. Now this story is found in Numbers chapter 20. And it's very interesting. This is where God said to Moses, they started complaining, well, we don't have any water. Uh, you know, all of our cattle are going to die. They need water. And God comes to Moses. He says, the people were saying they need water. And God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your staff. Remember the last time you were near some water? I want you to take your staff, raise it up over a rock, and water will start flowing out of that rock. Just stop, keep on flowing out of the rock. It will provide all the water that they need. So, Moses goes and what does he do? He strikes the rock. And then God says, you know, because you, this is how we think in our minds. God says, oh, because you struck the rock, you're not going to go into the Holy Land. You miss out on it. But it doesn't say because Moses struck the rock that he's being judged. It's because they were rebellious. And I'm going to show you what happens here. I want you to go over to Numbers Chapter 20. It's very interesting. We read over passages many times. And uh, just Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book of the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 20 tells the story. And I'm just going to pick up in the middle of the story, if you don't mind. And we'll look at Numbers 20 and verse 7. And if you don't have a Bible, listen. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, and speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod, from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together 
before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels! Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Now, what did God tell him to do? Just go, raise the rod, and you're going to get the water. But what does Moses do? He goes there, and guess what? He grabs all the people around, and he has a little sermon. And here's what he said. What do I have to do now? Get water out of turnip? You know, can't get water out of a turnip. Now you want me to get water, I'm going to have to get water out of a rock. See? And he's, Moses is, an, is very angry. And so then what he does is he strikes the rock. See? He says, so Moses took the rod before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, now here, rebels, must we bring water to you? from this rock, and then Moses lifted up his hand, verse 11, he struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, because you did not believe me to hollow my eyes in front of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given you. There was water at Meribah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. So it's not that Moses just struck the rock. <clears throat> it was that Moses was just totally in a state of anger and rebellion, and it really, he hits the rock because he's angry. He doesn't hit the rock because he doesn't believe God can bring forth water. He knows God can do anything, doesn't he? So what happens is that uh, he strikes the rock, he dies for this so-called lack of faith according to Numbers. <laughs> And then in verse 33 of Psalm 106, it says this, And because they rebelled against his spirit, watch this. Because the people rebelled against his spirit, watch what Moses did. So that he did what? Spoke rashly with his lips. That's the sin that Moses committed. He spoke rashly with his lips. Not so much that he just hit the rock. He did hit the rock, but it was more than that. It was that he was angry with the people. So these are the six rebellions in the wilderness. Now we come to rebellion in the holy land, okay? the promised land. Look at verse 34. Okay? So we have rebellious in the city, rebellion in the wilderness, rebellion in the promised land. Verse 34, the idolatry. They did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them. When they go into the promised land, that's what God said. Get rid of all those people, didn't it? They didn't do it. But they mingled with the Gentiles. And they learned their works. They served their idols. And this wasn't one time. It was over again and over again. And they would do it and they would do it and they would do it again. Which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. But the Jews did. Shed innocent blood. The blood of their sons and their daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. See, that's Canaan land. That's the promised land. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus, they were, de they were defiled by their own works, and they played the harlot by their own deeds. So now we have them rebelling continuously in the promised land that leads to judgment. Look at verse 40. It says this, Therefore the wrath of God was kindled against his people, so that he abhorred his own inheritance. 
He gave them into the hands of the Gentiles, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought in subjection under their hand. So God judged them for doing that. But then guess what he does? He shows them mercy. Now look at this next verse, verse 43. Many times he delivered them. See, they did it once, and he said, stop doing it. I'm going to judge you. He judged them. Guess what? They stopped doing it. But then they went back and did it again, and he judged them again, and then he stopped. And so notice verse 43. Many times he delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel and brought, were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction. When did he regard their affliction? When he heard their cry. Remember that. When he heard their cry. When did he deliver the Jews from Egypt? When he heard their cry. So don't forget that. He delivers them when he heard their cry. And for their sake, he remembered his covenant. He remembered his covenant. They didn't remember it. He did remember it. And he kept his word. And he relented according to the multitude of his mercies of loving kindness, his covenant kindness. He also made them pitied by those who carried them away captive. And so we have this rebellion in the promised land, judgment, and then mercy. Now, verse 46, in a sense, is a swing verse. Because what happens is they end up getting carried away by the Babylonians in the Babylonian captivity in 586 or 587. So now we come to the postlude, okay? So, first we have this prayer for deliverance. Look what the psalmist says of God. Now they're in Babylonian captivity. Look what he says to God. Save us. Deliver us, O Yahweh, Jehovah, our God. And gather us from among the Gentiles. Now they remained in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. God responds to their cries and they ask God to deliver them and he indeed will deliver them. Look at the closing benediction. But first, finish verse 47. Deliver us. To what end? To give thanks to your holy name. You only thank somebody when they've done something for you. Deliver us so that we can give thanks to your holy name. To triumph. Hey, it was God that did this. To triumph in your praise. So, now we have this benediction. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. See? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. From everlasting. To everlasting. So notice what he says. He prays, save us, Lord, gather us from the Gentiles, bless us God's name from everlasting to everlasting. And then guess what he does? He calls upon the people to do something. What does he say? At the end of verse 48, and let all the people say what? Amen. Amen. We sing a song in church. It's one of the modern songs. I don't particularly like it, but it goes like this. Then the people said amen. And there's a thing that goes, whoa, whoa. Well, anyway, that's where they they get it from this verse. It comes from this verse. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Doesn't come from the verse, but the other part comes from. Then all the people say, "Amen." So notice what he's done. Cries out to God to save them. Blesses God in advance. Says that when you do that, we will thank you and we'll praise you. And then he calls all the people in Babylonian captivity to affirm that prayer. 
and act on the words of the summons. Just as Egypt, just as the people in the promised land cried out to God, you need to cry out to God. And you can say amen to this because you know that if you cry out to God, what will he do? He'll deliver you. So, uh, this is how book five, book four of the Psalms ends. Now, it's very interesting how the Psalms began. Remember how the Psalms began? For those of you who are with us from the beginning, listen to this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. That person blessed. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. But they're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the day of judgment that they not there, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For God knows the way of the righteous, and the way of the ungodly shall perish. How far the nation has fallen from chapter 1 to Psalm 106. And next week we begin book 5 of Psalms. Lord, we thank you for your magnificent song. A long psalm, a historical psalm. Help us to learn the lessons, Lord, from this psalm. May we be a people who realize you've established and renewed a covenant with us through Christ and his death and resurrection. May we never forget that. May that always be on our conscience. May we be obedient. Help us not to say we love you, but help us to show that we love you by our obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus said. Oh, Lord, we want to be these kinds of people. We want to be the people who are deemed blessed. So help us to take comfort in these words. For those of us, Lord, who have messed up, and the nation that's messed up, help us to realize that if we cry out to you, you will send revival to an individual heart or the spirit of a nation. So, Lord, we say, save us now. In Christ's name, amen. Yep.